depicted in classic and contemporary television goes something like this. Scene one, prisoners incarcerated, locked behind bars, desperate for freedom. Scene two, planning the escape over months, sometimes years, plotting how the eventual escape will transpire. Scene three, making the escape. Convicts tiptoeing past guards, crawling through underground tunnels, and climbing up barbed wire fences, only to breathe the fresh air of freedom. And once beyond the walls, of course, typically the prisoners make a run for it. They leg it to the nearest hiding place, and they're hopeful to evade the authorities indefinitely. You know, if that is the traditional jailbreak story, then I think we're going to find this evening that the paradigm is going to be broken. Not least as we come to the jailbreak stories. Did you know there are jailbreak stories recorded in the Bible? Not least as we come to the book of Acts and the jailbreak stories we find here, there is a strange departure from the norm. These jailbreaks, firstly come about not by human devising, but by divine deliverance. We don't find the followers of Jesus plotting in their cells, working out the building schematics, uh, or digging holes under their beds. No, an angel of the Lord comes and breaks them out. Additionally, and even more bizarrely, in the case of a jailbreak in Acts chapter 5, Upon finding their newfound freedom, the escaped convicts go and stand in a public place, knowing full well that they will be caught by the authorities. And it's because of such strange anomalies that I've entitled this sermon this evening, A Peculiar Prison Break. And yet, don't be misled. Because as we shall also see, this strangeness has a straightforward explanation in terms of the apostles' obedience to God. Obedience is why they don't run. Obedience is why they stand and speak about Jesus, knowing that they're going to suffer because of it. So let's read together what God's Word says. It's in Acts chapter 5. It's a wonderful story. And we're reading from the 17th verse to the 42nd verse. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 1097. And as we read through, pay attention, would you, to this thread that runs through the story of obedience. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, And began to teach the people. 
When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and Christian, once made a rather startling statement. He said this, One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. I wonder if you would agree with him. One act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. It's perhaps surprising on first hearing. But I hope that in some further reflection, you would agree with him. Jesus himself said, Blessed rather are those 
who hear the word of God and obey it. That's Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Happy are those who not only sit under teaching, but who translate that teaching into living. That's what God is after. A church that hears God's word and obeys that word. A church that listens and then lives in response to the word of God. Now, by that definition, the apostles of Jesus were certainly a pretty blessed, happy people. Because in this passage, they are clearly characterized by this wonderful trait, and a rare one in the days in which we live, obedience. And I would like to simply consider with you for a few minutes some of the evidences of this obedience and to think about this in relation to our own lives. Because I trust if you are a Christian, you want to live an obedient life. I'm sure you do. You want to obey God. And we're going to see this evening that there are three evidences of the apostles' obedience. First, they declare the message of life fully. Secondly, they obey the Lord God supremely. And thirdly, they count the cost of following Jesus willingly. And these, these three angles will help us to see the shape of obedience this evening. So, I'm going to make it a little more provocative for you this evening. Because I know it's a Sunday night and you're tired. So, I'm going to put these to you as questions, alright, for us to answer. First of all, am I declaring the message fully? That's the first evidence of the apostles' obedience, and it is the first test of our obedience. This is what the apostles were commanded to do. Go, stand in the temple courts, verse 20, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And if you've got a pen, underlining your Bible, the word full. The full message. Not part of the message, but the whole message. Not just some of the content, but the complete gospel. Now, why did God have to say it that way to the apostles of Jesus? Why were the apostles not only commanded to preach the gospel, but the full gospel? The obvious answer, of course, is that they were tempted to preach a partial gospel. I mean, you could forgive them for it. They had just been broken out of prison. Thrown in earlier in that day by the, the green with envy Jewish authorities. And they, yet we know that the angel rescued them. He broke them out. And there they are, breathing the fresh air of freedom. And what would you do in such a situation? Run and hide? Get the false passports and head for the border? God says to them through the angel, I didn't free you to run. I freed you to preach. Oh, well, I guess we could do that. Maybe the apostles think to themselves. Uh, but why don't we just keep it low-key? You know, maybe we could give them the gospel, but the sort of non-offensive version of it. But God says, go. It's a command. And God says, stand. Don't cower. And God says, go into the temple courts, the most public of public places. And he says, tell the people the full message of life. Don't leave anything out because of tact or because of fear that you might be persecuted. That's what God was saying. 
don't know what you and I would have done in this situation. But we know what the apostles did. There was immediate compliance. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Not preach to the people, but teach the people. I think it's probably no accident here that the word teach is used instead of preach. Because when you have to give people the full message of the gospel, you're going to have to do some teaching as well as preaching. If you just give them the snack-sized, soundbite version, you don't need to do much teaching. But if you're going to give them the full thing, the full content, you need to teach as well as preach. I'm sure you know that in this church we certainly believe in preaching. Preaching is very important. But you know, in the days in which we live, teaching and preaching must come together. Teaching is so often a necessary prerequisite to preaching. There was a day when whole communities sent their children out to Sunday school, probably here in Edinburgh. When the children got the biblical truths uh, along with their playpiece in their lunchbox. There was a time where you could put on an evangelistic rally and you could bring people into a church and simply stand up with no introduction and say, Sinner, repent. And people knew what you were talking about. You say that today unexplained and folks will look at you as if you've just got off the ship from Mars. They have no idea what the word repent means. They have no clue they are a sinner. They don't even know what the word sinner means. They don't, many of them, believe in a personal creator God. They may say they believe in God, but they mean a different thing from you. Never mind understanding the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and what he came to do in terms of his cross work and then his resurrection from the dead. They have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. The million pound question on the game show is almost invariably the biblical question. So we need to do teaching as well as preaching. This is something we must remember, dear friends, not least in this year when we've got this focus on evangelism. Very important focus, but we must remember that it's not enough just to open our Bibles and throw a few choice verses at people. There must be teaching, there must be explanation of concepts for folks. It's one of the reasons why the Christianity Explored course and its ilk are so necessary today. Because people need to come on a journey before we bring the challenge so that they understand what we're saying. Teaching is very important. And yet, the little challenge of this passage, I think, is this. Are we teaching the full message of the gospel? Is it actually the full gospel we're giving people when we think we're teaching them the gospel? You've probably heard of the very excellent resource, Two Ways to Live. I think it's a very useful thing to learn yourself so that you can then teach others the gospel. It goes through at least the essential teachings that you would have to get across to an unbeliever. That there's a God who's a personal creator, that human beings are are sinful, we've rebelled against God, that Christ is the rescuer, our sin substitute, and that there's a response needed in terms of repentance and faith. This is the gospel. And I was thinking this week that in fact all All of these elements today are under challenge in certain quarters. You know, the fact that God is a creator, a personal creator, is downplayed today in the face of evolutionary science, is it not? The sinfulness of man is completely ignored by some who claim to follow Jesus, 
but speak about original goodness and how wonderful everybody is. You're all right, Jack, is the message that some churches are conveying. At the same time, scandalously, the essential work of Jesus, in terms of dying on the cross in our place, is increasingly under attack. And then when we come to the response, faith is often fuzzily understood and repentance is nigh often completely missed out the challenge of the gospel. I mention these things not to be critical of others, but really out of a pastoral concern and out of an evangelistic concern for us as a church. We need to be sure that when we think we're preaching the gospel, we really are preaching the full gospel. That we dare not leave out the blood of Christ that we dare not leave out the cost of repentance, that we dare not leave out things like the reality of hell because we believe that it's going to be unpalatable to people. Such fiddling of the gospel changes the gospel. It makes it a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I I see this even in myself sometimes. Interestingly, we're taking our children through a very good book, if you've got children, it's an overview of the Bible. It's called the Big Picture Storybook Bible. And so we sit around the tea, tea table and uh, the children are pretty much just munching on a tea. I don't know how much they're taking in, but we just do a different story every evening. And it's a really wonderful, complete coverage of the gospel and the biblical story. And, you know, sometimes I've sit, sat there and thought, do I really need to tell them this part? You know, does a four-year-old really need to know about a God of justice? You know, Daddy, why, why did God kill all those people in the flood? Uh, I really need to turn to the page where Jesus is hanging on the cross. Although the, the picture is not too, too extreme, but even my son says to me, you know, they're pretty naughty people. They're doing naughty things to Jesus, aren't they? How easy it is to give even children, you know, nice little stories that really don't contain the gospel at all, but they need to know these things, don't they? This is just my context. Whatever your context is, let me ask you, are you declaring the full gospel, the full message? It's a matter of obedience. Secondly, let's ask this of ourselves. Am I obeying God supremely? Am I obeying God supremely? Now, this follows the the re-arrests of the apostles. It's really a humorous story, I think, at least to begin with. The all-powerful Sanhedrin uh, send the soldiers to the cells to bring the apostles out. But all they find are empty jail cells. They can't understand it. The guards are still standing at the door. No clue what's happened. Somebody then comes in and says, look, the apostles, they're out in the temple courts again, where you arrested them yesterday. So they send the temple guard out. They bring them in uh, before them. And the essential charge is this, that the apostles have disobeyed, here's the obedience theme again, they've disobeyed the Sanhedrin. Verse 28, we give you strict orders not to teach in this name. This was very true. If you flick back to the previous story in chapter 4, which was in fact the first persecution in the early church, and the first arrest that they experienced, Uh, Peter and John had, in fact, been commanded, ordered, not to teach in this name. In chapter 4, verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What I find very interesting is that the apostles don't deny the charge. 
They are guilty as charged at one level. They had, verse 28, filled Jerusalem with this teaching. And not only had they broken this command in the past, but notice in verse 29, now they break the command again in the present. They not only fill Jerusalem with the teaching, they fill the Sanhedrin with the teaching. The apostles now disobey the Sanhedrin. There and then, Peter and the other apostles present the gospel. You just imagine the courage that must have taken. And notice in relation to our first point, just how complete the presentation of the gospel is. It's really worth a, a bit of extra study, going through all the sermons and acts and looking at the content of the gospel presentation. It's a gospel about the God of antiquity, the God of our fathers, verse 30, the God of Israel. It's a God about how men crucified Jesus, these men, but how God raised him from the dead. It's a gospel about a now exalted Jesus who lives and reigns today. I wonder how often we include that in our presentations of the gospel. And it's a gospel about how repentance and the forgiveness of sins is now available through the work of Jesus, to Israel. Now, this is not to say, of course, that the gospel is unavailable to the rest of the world. But remember who they're speaking to. They're talking to Jews. They're talking to the religious establishment in Judaism. And they're saying Jesus is the Savior of the Jews. And by the way, adds Peter, uh, since this is a courtroom, we also have two witnesses with us. First of all, ourselves, verse 32. And secondly, the Holy Spirit, who also testifies that these things are true. Here we see without a shadow of a doubt that the apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin. But notice something very crucial. That the reason for their disobedience to human authority is because of their obedience to divine authority. Peter's opening salvo in verse 29 is, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles disobey the Sanhedrin because the apostles obey God supremely. We actually touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you remember. While human authorities and governments should generally be obeyed, their authority is overruled when they command something that God contradicts. And so we see in this situation. It's a reminder, dear friends, that God's Absolute supremacy is over all earthly powers. Christian friend, I wonder, this is something we affirm in our songs. It's something we affirm in our prayers. I wonder if this is something we affirm in our lives. That God is our supreme authority. He's a higher authority than the governments. He's a higher authority than the persecutor. He's a higher authority than our spouse, our boss, even ourselves. Do we obey God first and foremost in the nitty-gritty of our lives? Of course, evangelism is the primary context, but you could apply this to almost every area of our lives. I mean, let me just pick on a couple of things, all right? In the workplace. Who's boss in the workplace, ultimately? You know, when you su suspect, indeed, you know that you're perhaps being called to do something a little bit unethical. And your boss is telling you to do it. It's just something you've got to do to get on, to get up. What do you do? Who do you obey? Who's, who's Lord in these situations? 
I know some Christians who ultimately have lost their jobs or moved their line of work because they couldn't serve two masters saying different things. Take another area, the murky waters of relationships in 2008 Scotland. I mean, the struggle that so many of us face really boils down to this fundamental issue of obedience. We hear orders on the one hand from the world. The world tells us in no uncertain terms that we must live our lives as expressive and sexually free individuals. Tells us that we should only be guided by our, our own human appetites. And we shouldn't be concerned about, you know, other issues like marital status or, or possible consequences. Go have fun, singleton. That's the message, isn't it, today? Ignore those religious killjoys seeking to hinder your pleasure. They say this on the one hand, then along comes the divine joy giver on the other hand. And what does he say about all this? He says, well, I created sexual relationships and I created it for the pleasure of human beings, but I did so in the context of a safe and secure union, of a lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. And who is it we are to believe in these situations? You know, we can make more complex these issues, we can theologize them and philosophize them, and we can empathize with people in these situations, but, you know, it comes down to the bottom line, who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey your, your own earthly appetites and what the world tells you, or are you going to obey God, who created you and who knows what's best for you? He says, it's going to be pretty hard for me to do that. Maybe some of you already know what it is in the workplace, in relationships, or whatever it is, to be faithful to God, and there is suffering that comes because of it. Well, I just want to encourage you this evening that the apostles suffered for their stand too. They suffered, indeed, probably, with respect, much more than you and I will ever suffer in our difficulties that we face. This really leads us to the third and final question about our obedience, and it's this. Am I counting the cost joyfully? Am I counting the cost joyfully? If obedience is costly, and it is, then am I willing to count the cost joyfully? This is what the apostles did. They suffered for their faith, and they rejoiced even as they suffered. Now, I guess the suffering could have been worse than it actually was. In verse 23, uh, we learn how the suffering was, first of all, downgraded. The gist of it is that an unexpected ally, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, comes to the apostles' aid. First, he sends the apostles out of the room. He wants to address the Sanhedrin himself. Next, he reminds the Jewish court of some prior history of two men, Thutis and Judas, who had recently appeared on the scene, who had similarly gathered around them a large group of followers, but who both had come to eventual ruin. And so finally, Gamaliel draws, I think, a very wise conclusion in verse 38. He says, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if the origin of this is from man, it will surely fail. But, on the other hand, if the origin is from God, you will fail. 
Verse 39, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And of course, anyone who fights against God comes off a loser. He's got a 100% record. The speech was evidently persuasive, even if Gamaliel's motives were perhaps suspect. Gamaliel certainly wasn't a believer in Jesus himself. And no doubt, as a Pharisee, uh, he quite enjoyed getting one over the rivals, the Sadducees, who were kicking up the fuss. Nonetheless, notice that the punishment is only downgraded by his speech. Sanhedrin won't kill these men as originally planned, but they do beat them within an inch of their lives. The punishment is dished out in verse 39. And it's not for the faint-hearted, I'm afraid. The apostles were flogged. That was the 40 lashes minus one. This is what Jesus himself endured before the cross. This actually was so bad that historians tell us that some victims of it actually died because of loss of blood in the beating. And even if one survived, of course the scars would be a permanent reminder of what it would cost if you contradicted the authorities. What a great cost it was to these first followers to follow Christ. And there's always a cost. Maybe not so severe as this, but there's always a cost to following Jesus. My grandfather used to say, he was a preacher, and he used to say, preach the cross and the cost. He hated the preachers who just preached the cross, and they never made plain to folks what it would actually cost them if they followed Jesus. Yes, eternal life is free. But following Jesus is costly over a lifetime. There's a price tag that comes with obedience. And you know, that, that's a message that's not popular in our day. Someone has dubbed our generation the aspirin generation. Because we're so full up of all and anything that will comfort us and bring us pain relief. We will avoid suffering at all costs. The only price we're willing to pay is whatever price it takes to keep us comfortable. And the deep irony is, of course, that in trying to keep comfortable and in achieving it in many cases, we are one of the most miserable generations that have ever existed. You've probably seen in the press recently all the talk about how antidepressants are at an all-time high in the United Kingdom. And not only, and not mostly, for medical reasons. But the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You see, there's a joy in suffering that we sometimes don't appreciate. We want to avoid suffering, but when you suffer for Christ, there's a deep level of joy that won't come to you any other way. Richard Wormbrand, in his book, uh, Tortured for Christ, it's a story of his imprisonment in Romania. And he said this of Christians in prison. There, Christians wear chains with the gladness with which a bride wears a precious jewel received from her beloved. You know, the engagement ring, the wedding ring. I have found truly jubilant Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. I'm sure you've found this too. Most of the Christians you know who are just brimming over with joy have had the toughest deal. And yet they've seen God in the midst of that. They've lived for Jesus through that. And they've seen that he is faithful 
and that he is worthy. I wonder if you are willing or I am willing. I don't know the circumstances of your life and, and what you're going through. But I wonder if you're willing just to go into this week and pay whatever the cost is going to be in your family, in your workplace, in your singleness. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I a cost counter? Are you counting the cost tonight? Or are you a comfort craver? As so many people in our society are. This is a peculiar prison break. It's extraordinary. It finishes with a peculiar finale. What more could you expect? Uh, Because it, it actually concludes with more evangelism. Day after day, verse 42, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only did they continue to disobey the Sanhedrin, they actually stepped up their witness in evangelism. In the temple courts, well, they'd been doing that before, and from house to house as well. They never stopped teaching about Jesus. See, ultimately, and we've talked about various things tonight, ultimately, an obedient Christian is an evangelistic Christian. The most obedient Christians are those that share Christ the most, his full gospel, in full obedience to God, with full awareness of the cost that will accrue. Want to be an obedient Christian tonight? Share Jesus and never stop sharing him with those that you come into contact with. I'm, so, I'm reminded and I'm so challenged by D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist himself. Moody's principle was to speak to at least one soul every day about Jesus. He believed that that was essential in terms of him obeying the Great Commission. He understood that the central command of the Great Commission was to tell people about Jesus. And so he made it his own practice to speak to one person every day. No excuse No hindrance would keep him from doing this task. I wonder how many of us will speak to even one person this week about Jesus. Perhaps we could just make a start with that, could we? This week. It isn't just a matter of the eternal destiny of those around us. I mean, that is a grave enough thing. It is also a matter of your continued obedience to Jesus Christ. He commands us to do it both. However we feel, however weak we feel. If Acts 5 is the criteria, how is your obedience bearing? How is mine? Let's pray.